Sage at Twilight, a bi-weekly Ghost in the Magazine supplemental series where we explore the liminal places, the hauntingly familiar unrealities, the architecture of lilac prose that is Rod Serling's original Twilight Zone series. I'm Elle. And I'm Allie. And today, we're going to take a look at episodes 29 through 32 of the first season of the show, which originally aired in 1960. This includes Nightmare as a Child, A Stop at Willoughby, The Chaser, and A Passage for Trumpet. Ali and I will discuss a stop at Willoughby and the Chaser, and then I'll briefly cover Nightmare as a Child and a Passage for Trumpet. In a stop at Willoughby, we meet a disillusioned mid-century cog in the capitalist machine, Gart Williams, who gets stressed out and begins to have delusions of getting off a train at a stop called Willoughby, a town styled as a slow-paced slice of 19th century Americana. The show tries to frame his ultimate mental breakdown as a strange thing that happens because he's quote-unquote a sensitive fellow with issues around insecurity and self-worth. However, as the audience becomes acquainted with his life, a soulless job, an overbearing sociopathic boss, a blindly ambitious spouse, it's hard to tell anyone thought this bullshit was sustainable to begin with. After a lot of hand-wringing, our boy eventually gets off at the stop while the train is moving, only to be collected by a hearse-marked Willoughby. So what did you think about this one, Allie? I absolutely loved it. They do say Willoughby like 30 times. <laughs> yeah. And that was like a little much, but the message was there. I was fully along for the ride with this guy. I sympathized with him from the beginning. And then his wife showed up. Oh my God. <laughs> you wonder how a couple like that even got married to begin with. They have completely incompatible worldviews. <laughs> absolutely. Woof. Yeah, she was just way more concerned with where they were going with success as a couple versus his personal well-being, which is maybe don't marry someone like that. Definitely. And I super don't understand that about rich people. They cannot be satisfied with the wealth that they have. They're always chasing more when uh, they start with like more than anyone could imagine. Yeah. Well, I grew up poor, but I don't do more than I have to. We'll put it that way <laughs> because I found that my time is worth much more to me. And I, I was going to say, I feel like the attitude of, around that has changed quite a bit. People are prioritizing their mental health over their job, but still a lot of people work themselves to death yeah and that's very well displayed here in this episode and i think it's easy to do because you get caught up in this idea that if you just work hard it will happen for you for me it took a lot of life experience and working my ass off and just being completely passed over multiple times before i got through my thick head and i was like well <laughs> this actually isn't a thing that's going to happen for me so i should just protect my mental health and another thing is it weirds me out a bit that instead of focusing on some idea of a better future it seems like these people that get in these situations they always go to this like idealized vision of the past as if there's not a thing as cause and effect and we got where we are from that place where we were oh absolutely he was in his little huckleberry finn dream and i was like i basically grew up in that town people <laughs> still are like unhappy here yep <laughs> huckleberry finn also had problems my guy and Mr. Misrule, the boss, and his push, 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 push. Oh my gosh. I was like, are you having a baby? That is what it sounds like, sir. And we start the episode with a guy that has been burned out and has quit. And that's the precipice for this guy's nightmare to begin. They also make a really heartbreaking point that this idyllic, carefree life doesn't exist. There is not a town called Willoughby that exists. There is a funeral home called Willoughby, implying that the only relief 
will ever come through death. Yep. Which is super fucking depressing. Thank you, Twilight Zone. <laughs> this one was good. And it was, I think, maybe the most self-contained with the ending. Because a lot of times we have this ending where they escape to their fantasy land, but they just disappear. But this one, we actually see that he fucking ate it. He's dead. <laughs> and the episodes are a little shorter, so I feel like there was an opportunity to explain like some of the coping vices that these people fall into. Like drinking or drugs or whatever. But, you know, they got 20 minutes and they told their story very well. Well, I think, too, he was trying to have a drink and his wife was like, why are you going to stop and have a drink? Why can't you keep grinding? And then she took the drink and went upstairs. Final thoughts or anything on this one? Never become an ad agent. Don't take shit from your boss. And maybe like a vacation. A support system is good. Just, you know, before you jump off a train, maybe try some other option. Good advice. Good advice. There are people that will take pity on you. Maybe not your wife, but some people. Well, here's the advice for that one. Don't get married to someone who doesn't have a freaking heart. Don't marry that type of person. Just find somebody that's cool with a less extravagant life, less ambition. Yeah, maybe know your spouse before you get hitched. Right? Also, this was the 1960s. This guy could have had a great vacation at like Woodstock or something. Right? Yeah. Literally could have just wandered out west. So the next episode, and maybe the most annoying Twilight Zone episode I have encountered so far, the Chaser introduces us to Mr. Roger Shackleford, a young man in love with the enigmatic and hard-to-get Leela. But Leela just isn't into it, and Shackleford isn't one to take no for an answer. He ends up in some haunted townhouse's library begging for a love potion from a myopic modern Merlin cleverly named A. Damon. After copying the potion and using it to completely and irrevocably change the life and personality of his victim, man-baby pisspants Shackleforth decides he can't handle the intensity of the love brought on by the spell and goes back to his murder nerd buddy to seek out the antidote. Unfortunately, the only available solution to his self-imposed arguably rape problem is a potion called a glove cleaner. A quick and easy uh, poison that ends it all. Shackleforth makes a big deal about the price and whines a lot but ultimately makes the purchase only to drop the poison glass in shock when Leela announces she's pregnant. I really thought he was going to switch up his drinks because he like sits on the back of the couch and then like turns around and it's all cattywampus and I was for sure that he was gonna mistake his drink for hers Mm -hmm. that didn't happen disappointing Twilight Zone but even then it's not good enough like this is your problem bitch fucking (laughs) live with it just abandoning her once he completely changes her life for my notes on this episode the first thing I wrote is simp central I knew immediately how bad it was gonna go and so did the professor first the stimulant and then the chaser implying he has a business off of selling problems and then also selling the solution which is a good business an evil one but a good Mm -hmm. one business wise i'm gonna say that this guy's alignment is chaotic neutral (laughs) like he doesn't care he tries (laughs) he tries but he doesn't really give a shit he's gonna get that thousand bucks which a thousand bucks in that time it's the equivalent of nine thousand and ninety four (gasps) dollars that's only like 50 years ago too oh it hurts i got a little bit of willoughby syndrome i'm longing for that better life (laughs) right this professor definitely gave me the vibe of like he's told people the truth so many times and they ignore him anyways Mm -hmm. very much working in retail vibes with this guy (laughs) he can try his hardest but he knows exactly what's gonna happen because Mm -hmm. he's seen it a million times before. Can we talk about how glove cleaner is a fucking gross name for a poison, considering the slang for condom? 
Oh, I didn't even catch that. <laughs> I don't think it was meant to. and Maybe it wasn't even slang then, but I heard that. And I was like, that's fucking gross. I love the implication when the guy first walks into the professor's library. He immediately asks, are you here for the glove cleaner? Mm-hmm. As if that's his like most requested product. Yeah, people are awful. Woof. It was obvious where it was going from the beginning, but every time I thought shit was fucked up, it got more fucked up. Oh, absolutely. I <laughs> didn't quite understand my dude at the beginning. I can't imagine what would attract you to someone who is so clearly uninterested in you. I feel like even if they're the most gorgeous person in the world, if they're so outright mean to you as to sound disappointed when they hear your voice, that would just kill it instantly for me. So hey. this guy's kind of stupid. If you're fucking with their free will and their like autonomy... What are you really getting when you're getting their attention? It's not love. It's like, what's the point of it? You're not really having a connection with this person. This is artificial. You might as well go fuck a robot, like in that other episode. Or hire a prostitute to say, I love you for like five minutes. Like, that's basically what he's doing. And it's really sad. Yeah. Instead, he completely trashes this woman's life. Because now she's a shadow of her former self. She doesn't seem to have any of that personality that she had in the beginning. She obviously doesn't have that... I'm going to take care of myself independence type feeling because now she's his thing that belongs mm-hmm. to him. Which, if- surprise, surprise, he doesn't like. Oh. Yeah, because he fucking liked her when she was pushing him away. Instead of a love potion, he should have got recommended to a therapist. Right. I would have loved if that was the episode. If the guy in the phone booth had handed him a business card and said, this will fix all of your problems. And it's the therapist. <laughs> this whole thing is very rapey. <laughs> Very much so. It's Consent is sexy, folks. They give it willingly or you don't get it. Right. And I feel like the moral, quote unquote, of the episode is be careful what you wish for, because that's how it's framed with his interactions with Damon, the cool wizard dude. and Professor uh, Damon, yes. It should be, don't fuck with people's free will and bodily autonomy. I mean, that's what the moral should be here. But I feel this like was it- the 60s. They were just cracking that nut of, <laughs> hey, maybe consent is important. They were just cracking that baby open. Just starting to. Yeah, this one Whoa. grossed me out really bad. Yeah, no sympathy for the protagonist here. Hmm. None at all. And n- none for the fucking professor either. If I was him, I would have been like, get the fuck out of my office, bitch. If it's not Leela, it's Dorothy or Anne. Right, and he was right, but he's still fucking, contr- again, chaotic neutral. He doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, he still caused this problem for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I offer you power, I offer you influence, and you want Leela? Dumbass. All right, one dollar. I feel like it's definitely implied that she has other lovers in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Because he's trying to call her and the phone is busy, implying she's talking to someone else. And then when he does get a hold of her, she's like snacking on a box of chocolates and like expectantly waiting for yet another lover's call. So this girl is on her grind. Moral learn, maybe use birth control if you're going to roofie somebody. Or don't roofie somebody. Yeah, don't roofie somebody. Don't spike people people champagnes and don't buy love potions from people with business cards (laughs) don't try to mess with people's free will if it's meant to be it will fucking come to you people need to get better at just cutting shit the fuck out of their life so that is it for what i'm going to be covering with ali if you would like to find the podcast on twitter we are at gitm podcast if you'd like to find me i'm at nocturnical i'm at izzy exe Okay, so episode 29, Nightmare as a Child. 
it's a backloaded Ouroboros of murder mystery surrounding school teacher Helen Foley and a mysterious child visitor called Marky. The episode exists primarily in that conversation between Foley and the strange child who somehow knows and shares a number of preferences with her host, which is really weird. Eventually, they're interrupted by a second visitor, a man called Peter Selden, who Marky is instinctively afraid of. Selden and Foley have a short and ultimately violent conversation where he reveals that, ah, of course, Foley's nickname as a child was Marky, and he, uh, murdered her mother and wanted to murder her, but she couldn't keep her goddamn mouth shut. The episode ends with a struggle that sends Selden down the staircase to his death and fully reunites fully with her past as Marky. It's a lot of stories shoved very elegantly into that short run window of the episode through the selective processing of trauma and forgotten memories, but while it's really well contained and satisfying, it falls into that trap of being a little bit more predictable than some of the other episodes. Although, you know, I would take picking up that kid is her pretty much immediately off the bat when the episode starts over that whole no they're not gonna do that they couldn't they won't they they did what the fuck shit show that was the chaser and in the final episode i'm going to cover today we have a passage in trumpet a down on his luck lapsing alcoholic jazz musician named joey crown trades in his instrument and briefly his life after realizing that he's too depressed to perform sober the episode foreshadows his later conversation with an intervening archangel when he describes playing drunk as becoming something more he claims that he's gabriel when he's drunk because of course gabriel is the angel of communication right so anyway the narrator has a real kink with describing how odd and intense dude's face is and maybe yeah, people are just kind of fucking depressed because people say weird fucked up shit like that about them. Just saying. Anyway, after Crown is hit by the car, he has a conversation with the angel who pep talks him, sets him up before sending him back down to earth where shit is cured pretty quickly because now some girl wants to bang him. And yeah, it's inspirational and all that, sure. People who interact with what they believe to be divine powers could be jolted into a euphoric state long enough to slip out from under that depression a little bit. But it's a bit patronizing to me to think that weightier existential problems simply drift away when you're offered a chance to get your dick wet. Just saying. And with that, I must depart and be a fucking ray of sunshine elsewhere. This has been the penultimate episode of the first season of Sage at Twilight. I will be back to wrap up our conversation of season one of the original Twilight Zone series in two weeks. Until then, Love yourself, look to the future, and don't call your pal's face odd and intense, or you may end up being a huge fucking dick. Okay, bye!